Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to have you here. Uh, if you have uh, your Bibles, you might open to the book of Colossians, because Colossians is where we're going to be for a while. And uh, I finally found a Bible that has print large enough for me to read. Unfortunately, I had to join a gym um, in order to be able to lift it. Uh, but I want to just read for you. This is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, you can just mark in your Bibles the book of Colossians because we're going to be here for a while. That's in the New Testament in the letter section. And let me read from Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world and it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this week that we had to walk with you, to experience new life in you, to experience the wisdom and discernment and faith and love and hope that comes from being in Christ. And I pray for us now, not just for this morning, but I pray for us over the months to come as we walk through this book, verse by verse, knowing that this same book has been studied by Christians all over the world, in every language and in every place. People who have been blessed, People who have grown, people who have come to know you, people who have been changed by the power of your word. I pray for change in us. I pray for growth in us. I pray for us in the weeks to come that we will be, as it says, rooted and established in the faith. And we pray for these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, uh, back when uh, I graduated from uh, college many years ago, I went to college in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, that's where I met uh, Christy, who would one day become my wife, and uh, she was from Portland, Oregon, and uh, we met there, and we had, uh, we knew each other for a couple of years, and we had dated a couple times off and on uh, during that time, but it really wasn't until about the time I graduated that uh, we got really serious on our relationship and dating, and, and just as things kind of got pretty serious, um, I had to move for the summer after I graduated to Oakland, California, and in Oakland, um, I was going to work there during the summer um, in a ministry to grade school kids uh, in Oakland. It was, a, it was an amazing ministry, and it was very important in my my spiritual formation. Uh, but Christy was going to move home to Portland, Oregon. And so I was going to be in Oakland for the summer and she was going to be in Portland. And then I was going to move to Portland after that uh, in the fall to go to seminary. So we were going to be separate for a couple of months and we had just really started dating and gotten serious. And I was very much in love for her. I can't really speak for her, but I was really into it. And, um, and, and you know, two months felt like forever. It just felt like forever. And 
So uh, I moved to Oakland, and uh, that was back in the old days, right? We didn't have cell phones back then. I mean, Tom Selleck had one, um, but the rest of us couldn't afford one. And so I didn't have a cell phone, which meant there was no texting, right? Um, like, I'm in love with you. Like, none of that stuff. No, no Facebook, um, no, no Messenger, none of that kind of stuff. We only had, really, um, a, a telephone. Some of you remember the day where you had this receiver thing that had a wire on it that went to the wall that had wires on it went all over the world, right? And so you were kind of stuck. And do you remember, for those of you who are old enough, remember long distance calls and the cost of long distance calls? And so uh, I could maybe afford one call a week, which I would make, and, but otherwise, um, I didn't have any other way to communicate with her. And so I did this thing, maybe you've heard of it, where I got some paper and, and a pen and a thing called an envelope and stamps. And I would write letters and I I wrote her during the summer a letter every single day. She'll attest to this. Sometimes I wrote more than one letter a day. Uh, I was all in. And, um, and I would write at the end of the day, you know, I'd be like, I'd write about what happened that day and, um, you know, some of the funny things that the kids did. And I'd write about faith and, and what I was learning in scripture. Um, you know, I'd, I'd write about uh, what my thoughts were and my dreams were. And I would ask her how her day was going, even though she couldn't actually answer me right then. But we were trying to build a relationship. And we were doing it through letters. Maybe you've heard of that. It's a, it's a tough way to do it, but that's what we wanted. We wanted to build a relationship. Today we're beginning a series uh, on the book, or more technically the epistle, of Colossians. Uh, Colossians is a letter. The word epistle in the Greek means um, a letter. It is a letter from God to us. Uh, technically we would say it is a letter that the Holy Spirit wrote to us through a guy named the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a particular group of people who lived in a particular part of the world in a very specific time. Um, they were church. And thankfully God has preserved that so that 2,000 years later we can read it and we can be encouraged in our faith as well. So we're going to be going through the book of Colossians. And I always like to do this when we start a new book, just to kind of let you know if you can see this. Kind of where we are. This is, so if you're into science and you're a geek and a nerd and, and you're into the Bible, then you can combine them together and get a periodic chart of the Bible. It's really super cool. And so you can see over here, we have the Old Testament over here, 39 books. And over here, we have the New Testament, 27 books. And we have been in the Old Testament, actually, for um, quite a while now. We have uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses. In fact, we just uh, got done spending 12 weeks in Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, as we were talking about Joseph. And then we have what we call our historical uh, narrative books. And in fact, we spent a whole bunch of time in the book of Judges here. Uh, we have our wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then we have our major and minor prophets. And we've told you before the difference between a major and a minor prophet is simply the length of the book. So these are long books and these are shorter books. And then we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament we have 27 books. And you may know how we break these down a little bit. We have our, our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, these are historical books that tell us about the life of Christ uh, generally from um, right before his birth to his ascension. We have the book of Acts that often is kind of just hanging out there. I don't know if you notice this. Um, 
It doesn't really have, it's, it's technically a historical book, but if you remember originally, it was part of the book of Luke. Luke wrote both of these books together and they were one book. Later on, the church divided them into two books because they're just so long. And so we separated them and Luke takes us basically from the birth of Christ through the ascension and then Acts picks up uh, after that in the birth of the church and the spreading. And then we have what we might call the Pauline letters. And these are letters that Paul wrote to churches, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth and, and Galatia. And um, we've got these books, and then we have just our general letters or epistles. So, for instance, Hebrews, I don't know who wrote that book. If you do, you can tell me later. Uh, you know, written by James and Peter and John. And then we have Apocalyptic, right? Sounds really serious. The book of Revelation down here, which is really not a revelation of the end times. It is technically the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. If you're really into nerdy stuff, this will kind of tell you it has four chapters, 95 verses, written by Paul, um, written somewhere between 58 and 62 AD. In reality, probably a little bit earlier. And we're going to be in this book for a while. In fact, when we are done with this book, it will be October. So it's going to be just a, a little while here. The book of Colossians. So let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics before we dive into the text. Um, first of all, you need to understand who it was written to. It was written to a church in Colossae. So let's just talk about that for a minute. Um, where's Colossae? Colossae would be, this would be modern day Turkey right here. And that's where that, uh, that city is. You may be familiar with some of these places. Remember Jesus said that the gospel will go to Jerusalem and then Samaria and Judea, which it has done. And by this time, it's gone to the kind of the known world, the Roman Empire. Rome being way over here, you, you probably know Ephesus. And Colossae is right here about 80 miles inland from Ephesus. If we look even a little more specific here, we've got, again, uh, Turkey here, and Ephesus would be over here, and about uh, 80 miles in is Colossae, and then we've brought about 10 miles to Laodicea. You've probably heard of that. Hierapolis. Now, what we know is about 400 years before this book was written, uh, Colossae was a major city. Big city, big population, a lot of wealth. But over the next 400 years, it, uh, it becomes eclipsed by Ephesus, Laodicea and Hierapolis. So by the time that uh, the book is written, it is a city uh, really of no consequence. Um, it's not an important city. It's not a big city, I would say, compared to Washougal, but I don't know, maybe that's unfair. Um, it's really not the center of the world, um, but there are believers there and there is a church there. In fact, interesting, about 60 to 62 AD, there was a, a major earthquake in the area. It destroyed the city and it was never rebuilt. Um, Laodicea was, but Colossae was not. And in fact, if you go there today, this is all you'll see left of Colossae. This is um, from the south, uh, across the river, uh, Lycus River, looking in this is where uh, the, the city of Colossae used to be. And it's just underneath all this debris now over the last 2,000 years. If you go there, there's nothing to see. It's, it's a rarity because there hasn't been any archaeological work done on Colossae. And you can see that uh, groups have tried to raise enough money to do it, but they've never been able to because the, the thought is there's nothing there really to see. It wasn't an important city and nobody thinks they'd find anything of consequence. Um, interesting, probably the, the greatest legacy of Colossae is this letter that Paul wrote. I, if it wasn't for the letter, none of us would probably even know that the city ever existed. Which takes us to the author. The author is a guy you've probably heard of. We call him the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's, this is how we know who wrote the book. It tells us it's Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So you may remember that Paul, the apostle Paul, was not a disciple of Jesus while he was on this earth. Um, He was not uh, one of those guys that followed him around. In fact, we don't know if Paul ever uh, saw Jesus face to face. He might have. Uh, He might have been at the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. We just don't have any any record of that. Um, He was a Pharisee. He was a, a Jew. And as such, uh, he believed that Jesus was a false teacher. He believed that uh, Christians had been misled and that they were infecting Judaism. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated Jesus Christ. He went around having Christians arrested, having them persecuted, having them thrown into prison. He was even having Christians put to death. And on one occasion, you may remember the story, he was headed to a city called Damascus. And while he was on his way in order to find Christians and, and have them thrown into prison, he has this face-to-face meeting with Jesus Christ who who appears to him in a vision. And uh, basically he confronts Paul and Paul comes to a place of faith and he is chosen by Christ to be his apostle. And so he becomes this apostle who goes from um, trying to stop the church to trying to plant churches, from trying to persecute Christians to trying to convince people to become Christians. And he writes this letter eventually. We call it an imprisonment letter. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, probably somewhere between 52 to 60 AD. And if you get into the scholarship, you'll discover that there are three possible locations that he wrote it from Ephesus. He had been in prison there. Rome, where he had been in prison in Caesarea. And we think it probably wasn't Caesarea. It was probably Rome or Ephesus. And we could take the next 30 minutes and I could talk to you about why it maybe was Ephesus and why it was Rome. And you'd be bored out of your skull. Uh, And I would tell you when we're done, it actually doesn't matter. So we'll just leave it at that, except to say that he was in prison. So who did he write the letter to? He wrote it to a church to a group of people in a town called Colossae. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So in Acts chapter 19, if you were here when we were going through Acts verse by verse, you might remember that in Acts chapter 19, Paul um, came to a place called Ephesus. And he was in Ephesus for a couple of years preaching the gospel. And while he was there, people came from all over the area and they would come to Ephesus for business and they might come in contact with Paul and they might hear the gospel. And two such people uh, had come from Colossae and they heard Paul preach the gospel while they were there. So they're 80 miles away from home and they hear Paul teaching in Ephesus and it says that they believed the gospel that they heard. Their names were Epaphras, we'll learn more about him in the weeks to come, and a guy named Philemon. And so they became believers and and they went home. They went home to Colossae and they told people about the gospel that they had heard. And some of those people came to believe and a church was born. They began to meet in in a home. Actually, they met in Philemon's home. He opened up his home. And so by the time of this writing, this is where Paul's writing it to. A a group of people, they're obviously a small group of people and the church is very young and Paul's writing this letter to them. And so he would have wrote it and Epaphras delivered the letter and then he went on his way to be an evangelist in the area and they would have read this. Can you imagine? They would have read this letter, right? So uh, Philemon, Philemon would have stood up one Sunday and said, well, I, was, I had a sermon, but I just got a letter from Paul, and it's a letter to us. So you're going to be the first ones. Like, they couldn't have had any idea at the time that 2,000 years later, people all over the world would be studying the same letter, but he got to read it to them. This letter was written to a specific church 
at a specific location in a specific time. The interesting thing is, Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never been there. He had never met these people. He's writing a letter to people he's never met. It made me think, there are probably places that some of you have, have never been and yet you have helped take the gospel there. Maybe you've done it through supporting a missionary. Maybe you've done it through, through praying for the work of the gospel in different parts of the world. Maybe you've supported our Nicaragua team. You've never gone there, but you've supported people who have gone. Maybe you, and I know we've had some in our congregation who have shared the gospel with people from another country who have come to believe and gone home and taken the gospel there. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here. Paul gets to be part of this, but he's never been there. He's never met them, but he's heard about them. And so he writes this letter to them. And notice he calls them saints. Uh, the Greek word is hagias there. Uh, the word means um, someone who is holy. And I know oftentimes when we think of the word holy, we think of, you know, people who are, you know, kind of, we think of perfection and a and, uh, little halo around them. But actually the word simply means someone who's been set apart. And we would say theologically it's someone who's set apart by God and, and for God. So for instance, in the Catholic Church, you may be familiar with this, they have things they call saints. And saints in the Catholic Church are, you, you have to first of all be dead uh, to be a saint. You have to be dead and dead for a while. And then you have to have worked three verifiable miracles. And if you work those three miracles and someone was willing to sponsor you, of course, after you were dead and it can be proved, then you can become a saint. But Paul says, every believer is a saint right now and right here. That is, we have been set apart by God for God. Paul explains this a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1. Notice how he describes a saint. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So saints aren't just in Colossae, but they're also in Ephesus. Uh, in Christ Jesus. So that's a saint, someone who is in Christ. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Who has uh, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So saints have every spiritual blessing that's available, that we should be holy um, and, and blameless before him. Redemption through his blood. Uh, our sins have been forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. And so he uses this term in Christ. Uh, in Christ is a term that is used uh, a phrase in Colossians more than any other phrase. It means to be joined to Christ. Joined to his resurrection. Uh, joined to his, his death. Joined to his righteousness and to the new life that he offers. And what he says here is to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. But, but technically in the Greek, um, the way it reads is um, in Christ, in Colossae, not at Colossae. And I think in the Greek he's trying to make a point here. He's saying, he's talking about people who uh, were Roman citizens living in a Roman city, but also in Jesus Christ. And this is going to become another major theme of the book. That we are people who live in, you know, we live in the United States. We live in Clark County. Maybe some of us live in Washougal or in Camas. But even more importantly, we're in Christ. So we're going to talk a lot about this idea that you are in Jesus in a, a geographical location. And you may discover at times that, that that's tough. That that's hard to be somebody who's in Jesus in this world. What Paul is going to write to the Colossians is what we would maybe today call politically incorrect. In that day, uh, you, if you were a Roman citizen, it was your responsibility to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And if you didn't proclaim Caesar as Lord, you could be thrown into prison, you could be put to death. And so along come Christians and along comes Paul who instructs people that there's only one Lord and his name is not Caesar, it is Jesus Christ. 
And what does that mean? It means that everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did is true. Not just true for you. And not just true for us, but true for every person who has ever lived. It means that he is the universal king. It means that there is no such thing as your truth and my truth and her truth and his truth. There is only one truth that is, that is defined for us by Jesus Christ. Right? Can you imagine saying that today? Like going to work tomorrow, if you work tomorrow, and you're going to the office and maybe you have a, a staff meeting in the morning and, and in the middle of the staff meeting where everyone's munching on donuts, you just stand up and say, yeah, I just want, it all, I want to tell you all that, um, I mean, I don't know what you believe, but there's only one God. And there's only one Lord. There's only one way, truth, and life, and that's Jesus. And if you know him, then you're in Christ going to heaven. And if you don't, well, you need to get your life right. Like, can you imagine how well that would go over if you just posted that on, on Facebook or tweeted that? Or, but let me just say this. Back then, it was even a bigger deal than it is today. And so he writes this to these, these people, these saints in Colossae. Now, why did he write this letter? Well, we'll see in the, the days and weeks and months to come um, that there was some kind of issue. Now, commentators, if you get into this, they like to call it the, the Colossian heresy. I'll just say that I, I'm not exactly sure what the heresy was or, or if it existed, if it was actually in the church or maybe not in the church yet. Paul's just writing preemptively. Some people think it's Judaism. They think that the problem here is that there was a there was a large Jewish population in Colossae and a lot of the new Christians had come from Judaism. And we know that oftentimes when people first came to Christ as Christians, they would start going to church but they would still go to synagogue. And so you have these new believers who are going to both and they're going to synagogue and, and the rabbi's teaching them that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life and they're telling them that you need to perform certain rules and, and rituals and rites and we'll see some of those when we get to chapters 2 and 3 and that Jesus wasn't enough. And so maybe that's what's going on. Um, the more prevalent thought is this, that there was this thing called Gnosticism. And that's kind of starting to invade the church. And maybe you've heard of Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis. And the word gnosis in the Greek simply means to know something. But here, it meant to know secret things of God. So what, uh, a Gnostic, uh, what someone who's in Gnosticism believed was that um, there was kind of the average you know, kind of dopey ignorant Christian who they only read their Bibles and got some Bible teaching and they believed that Jesus was the only way to heaven and they were kind of ignorant and then there were the people who were into Gnosticism and these were the really smart really bright people. They knew the secret things of God that you could not know through scripture. Um and they believed a whole bunch of stuff we'll talk about in the weeks to come. But one really important thing is they believed that matter, that the physical world was evil. Everything that is matter, everything that is created is evil. And we'll unpack in the weeks to come why that was important. But just kind of the cliff notes here would, would look something like this. The entire immaterial, or material world, world is evil and the immaterial world is good. And so what that means, among other things, is that God can never be directly involved with the material world because it's evil. So they taught, for instance, that God did not create the world because the world is evil. And so God couldn't do that. And so there were these things called emanations or kind of lesser spirits that God created. A whole bunch of these to separate him from the created world and then the world was created through one of these emanations. Uh, I know really weird stuff. And that Jesus, for instance, didn't have a physical body because that would be evil. 
So you can start to think about what this means. So Jesus didn't have a physical body. They believe he was a ghost-like phantom. That uh, he didn't create the world because that would be evil. Um, That the incarnation wasn't real. Jesus didn't have a real body when he walked in this earth. So think about that. That also means the crucifixion wasn't real. And that means the resurrection wasn't real. And what that means to them is Christ is not enough. He's not enough. He's maybe a start. But he's not enough to be right with God. And so Gnostics built the system by which you could uh, maybe begin with Jesus, although you didn't have to. And then you could work your way up a spiritual ladder um, through ascetic disciplines, that is denials, don't eat, don't touch, don't drink. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Uh, Through secret passwords, that secret passwords. And if you prayed these secret passwords to God, then God had to give you what you asked for. I know it just sounds crazy, like, people 2,000 years ago. But you know that there are still churches today that teach the same thing. That teach today if you pray in a certain way, God has to give you what you ask for. So it's, it's still around today in the church. And uh, they were into astrology and kind of, you know, certain aspects of Christianity. And so Paul comes along and he's going to write to the Colossians. Here's what you need to know. I know you're hearing all sorts of crazy stuff out there, but Jesus is God. Jesus was, was God in the flesh. He's the creator. He'll talk about that. Uh, he's the savior of the world and Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So be rooted and established in Jesus. And so that's kind of the book in a nutshell. And this morning, I want to just talk because kind of one of the first things Paul does is he, he dives in a little bit and he, he mentions what I'm going to call three signs of life. So he's writing to the church and he's, he, he believes that they are a church. Now, why does he believe they're a church? If, if Paul was to come here today and, and be in a worship service and talk with some of you after the service, would Paul be able to tell if we are really a church of believers? And what Paul's going to say is yes. I don't have to guess. I can know if you're a believer and I can know if your church is a, is a true church because there are three signs of true life, of authentic life in Christ. In verse three says this, now we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul says, whenever I pray for you, when I think of you, I'm so full of joy as I thank God for you. Why? Because what Paul knows is what he's heard about the church could only be the work of God. Which makes him pretty excited. What does that work? He says this. Since we heard three key words here that may sound familiar to you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Sound familiar? Right? Faith, hope, and love. It's been called the apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. How can I know that somebody's really saved? And sometimes I'll hear this. People say, well, you never really know. Well, you can't really tell. Paul says nonsense. Nonsense. Is there faith, hope, and love? Now here's what's interesting that we'll see in this passage that we won't see anywhere else. Do you notice anything interesting about this? He's mixed up the order. What's the order usually? It's faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. But here he mixes it up. Faith, love, and hope. What's he doing here? Well, let's walk through this and I'll I'll show you what I think is going on. First of all, the first sign of true life in Christ is this. You have faith in Christ Jesus. That's where we start in verse 3. Now we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, and not just your faith, but your faith in Christ Jesus. 
So now the word for faith here or trust, uh, pistis in the Greek, it means uh, persuasion, it means conviction, and sometimes faith feels like a word that's hard for us to, to kind of pin down. But Paul would argue actually that's not true. He might put it this way, it's trust that results in action or it's trust that results in obedience, but it's always the two. It's not just a faith in something, it's always obedience. You can go to the book of James, right? He makes that point again and again. How do you know that faith is real? Because it always has works. So we have a kind of general, um, generic faith in all sorts of things. So I watched some of you when you came in this morning. I didn't see any of you come in the room this morning and I'll walk up to the chair that you're going to sit in and kind of walk around it and do a four-point inspection and kick the legs and push down. You just sat in a chair, right? Why did you sit in the chair? Because you've done it many times and you kind of have trust. You trust that that chair is going to hold you. So maybe some of you, uh, you're going to get on an airplane this week. I know several of you are. Good for you. And uh, you're going to get on a plane and go somewhere where it's sunny, right? My guess is you're not going to look up the pilot online and do a little research on him and a little research on the plane. You're not going to get to the tarmac and kick the tires and inspect the engine. You're just going to get on the plane because you've got some trust, some general trust. Maybe you go to a restaurant. You know, you don't know what those people in the back room are doing with the food that they're preparing for you. you right? You have some trust. You take a medication. You have some trust. Uh, W.E. Vine said this, and I think this is, this is great. He says, when a person obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that in his heart he believes God. Right? Let me read that again. When a person obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that in his heart he believes God. Anyone can say, I believe God. How do we know? Because the Bible says that always, true faith always produces action, uh, decisions, evidence and proof. And here he talks about faith in Christ. So he's not just talking about faith, he's talking about faith in Christ, that the object of our faith or our trust is Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a culture that loves to talk about faith, just not the same way the Bible does. Uh, you know, have faith in yourself. <laughs> if you have enough faith in yourself, or sometimes just have faith in faith. If you just trust enough, you know, or, or the law of attraction. This is a big one today. The law of attraction of positive thinking. People say, if you just put out positive vibes, the universe will give back to you what you trust it for, right? That's like the law of attraction of positive thinking. Crazy, ridiculous stuff. Unfortunately, that also exists in the church as well today, if you just believe enough, right? Salvation does not come by faith and faith. Salvation does not come by being positive enough, or, or it doesn't even come through a set of, of doctrines or a creed. Salvation comes by trusting a person. It comes by trusting Jesus Christ. It's, it's personal. Faith is not a strategy or a ritual or a password for getting into heaven. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says is, first of all, here's how I know that you're really a Christian and that this is a true church because you have faith, not just in faith, but in Jesus Christ. You say it and you act like it. And here's the second thing. I see in you a love, a love for all the saints. So again, our culture is really into faith in a generic sense and our culture is also really into love, right? We're really into love. Love yourself. The greatest love is you. Love is the answer. Love is all you need. And a big one in our culture today is this. Here's how I know that you love me. Because you affirm what I affirm. 
And this is a big one. If you love me, you will affirm what I affirm. Love in our world is an emotion. It's an emotion. And, and the problem with emotions are emotions are uncontrollable. And we even have terminology to reflect this. Right? Like sometimes we'll say like, well, I, I fell in love. I felt I was walking down the road and I didn't see that pothole and I fell in it. It was a pothole of love and I had no control. I just fell in it. And then one day I, what do we say? I fell out of love. I fell out of love. It's like love is a tree and I couldn't hold on anymore. It was impossible. It was terrible. And I just, I finally let go. I couldn't, I just fell out of love. I fell into love. It's just an emotion. In the New Testament though, it is never an emotion. You can't command an emotion and yet love is commanded. Love is a command that's to be expressed in how we treat other people. In John 13, Jesus said this, a new commandment, I'm commanding you to do this. I'm giving it to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you. So there's a standard for what love is. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now you may be familiar with the Greek word here for love, agape, and there's a, there's a ton of definitions for what agape love is. We, we could say it's, it's an affection that results in actions uh, that improve the welfare of another person. It's kind of long, but basically what it means is that I act in a way that benefits you. That's what love is. I act in a way, not just think, not just feel, but I make decisions and I treat you in a way that benefits you. So we could see that, for instance, in the life of Jesus. And he goes around and he's teaching. And as he's teaching, why is he doing it? Because he loves them. So he speaks the truth to them. And sometimes when he teaches, it's confrontational. Why? Because that's what love is sometimes. And sometimes it's encouraging. Why? Because he's speaking truth to them. He's loving them. Jesus goes around in the gospels healing. That's another way of, of improving the welfare of people who are sick or dead. Uh, he washes the feet of the disciples. Uh, that's an act of love that benefits some guys with dirty, stinky feet. Um, he goes to the cross where he suffers and he dies. Why did he do it? He did it for your welfare. It's serving, it's sacrifice, it's identifying and meeting the needs of, of people around you. So we could just say that this is love. It's looking at the people around you that you say that you love and identifying how you can serve them and, and how you can benefit them. It, and it says here that we are to love as Jesus loved us. So there's a standard. Right? It's not just affirm whatever I want, which increasingly is what the world's telling us. I ran across this recently. Maybe, maybe you saw this on the internet. It's an imagined conversation between uh, someone who doesn't believe in Christ and someone who does. And uh, this may sound like conversations you've had. So in this, in this imaginary conversation, the secular person says to you, I want to do X, right? Whatever it is. I want to do some sin. I want to sleep with this person, ingest this thing, buy this thing, whatever. Something that scripture says don't do, lie, cheat, and steal. And the Christian's response is, well, you're free to do that, right? We live in the United States. We can't stop people from making sinful decisions, right? So they're, they're free to do that. Have you ever had a conversation? Well, I'm just going to go do this thing. And what can you say? Well, I mean, you can do it. Yeah, you're, you get it. Secular person responds, but you think that that is wrong. And you say, yes. So you ever been in that world? Yeah, that's true. I do think it's wrong. And then they say, because you want to control me, right? You try to, no, you're free to do whatever you wish, right? If you have like, no, I mean, you can do it, all right? But, but you think it's wrong. Yes, I want what's best for you. And that's sin. And that's never best for you, right? But, but I want to do X. You're free to do it. 
Right? You're free to do it. But, but I want you to say that X is good. Isn't that what it comes down to? But I want you to say that it's okay. And how many times have you had to say, oh, well, I can't say that. To which response is something like, why are you such a hateful, intolerant bigot, right? Because that's, but that's our world. That's our world today, right? Love is when you affirm what I want you to affirm. And let me just say this as a bit of a side note, and I'll try not to get off track here too much, but I could just say that there are probably some of you in this room today, and I'm not saying it because I'm thinking of any of you in particular at this moment, just the law of averages. There are probably some of you in this room today right now who are, you, you want to pursue some kind of sin in your life, some sinful thought or action or whatever it is, and you want to do it, and you've, you've, you've reached out to the people around you, and you said, this is what I want to do, and you, you have some Christians around you said, no, I can't affirm that, right? And so maybe you're pushing back to them. Why are you so mean? Why are you so bigoted to me? And sometimes we push them out, don't we? The people who speak truth of love to us, we push them aside and we say, why are you so mean? Why are you so hateful? And the irony is, they're the ones who love us most, right? You can always find someone in this world who's going to affirm some sin you want to do, always, and probably a lot of people who will do it. But sometimes the people who love you the most are the people standing right next to you saying, no, I can't affirm it. I just want to encourage you. Don't be so quick to push those people aside. Your mom, your dad, you know, your sibling, a spouse, whoever that is. Because true love speaks truth. True love meets the practical needs of others and it speaks the truth. And it washes feet. And it, and it confronts sin. Because it loves the other person. And it feeds the hungry. And it corrects people. And it befriends. And right, Jesus defines true love. Not our culture. Not movies today. Or the latest social movement. In verse 4 again he says. The love that you have for all the saints. For all the saints. Right, without discrimination. For everyone to save. Now in that church it would meant, what he would be saying is that means Jews and Gentiles love each other in our church which would have been weird in that day. Um, and male and female, slave and free, learned and, and uneducated, rich and poor, respected and, and outcast. They were one. They worshiped together. They ate together. They practiced hospitality together without discrimination and they loved one another in Christ. And this was different. This was a community held together by love. Not geographical boundaries. Not a common language or a neighborhood, not politics. It was beyond, can you even imagine? It was beyond politics. We love, we love people that vote different than us. Can you imagine that? Uh, it was beyond nationality or social status or language or economic status or education or looks. Or the, the love was extended to all of the saints. We'll talk about that, but what he says in detail here is, here's how I know that you're a believer and that faith is real in this church, because there's faith in Christ and there's a love for all the saints. And he goes on, and there's a hope stored up for you in heaven. In verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the NIV we think probably gets it right here uh, when it translates it this way. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So what he's saying is this. The, the Colossians have confidence about their future. They have a con I don't mean a confidence about this afternoon or a confidence about tomorrow. They have a confidence about a hundred years from now because of what is stored up for them in heaven. 
They know that there's more to this life than this life. They know that they have a future beyond this life. And because of that, it strengthens their faith today. And it strengthens their love. They have the ability to love because they know that they have a future in heaven. In 1 John 3, it tells us this, Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's, uh, we are believers now, but there's something that we're going to become that we haven't seen yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself and is pure. What he's saying is basically, when you believe that, when you believe that there's a life beyond this life, when you believe that there's a future for you in Christ, it will impact the way that you live today. You say, well, it's hard to put off sin today. It's hard to live righteously, but it's not when you believe that there is a hope for you stored up in heaven. And this hope is not wishful thinking. It's not just sitting going, I hope, I hope, I hope, I wish, I wish. It's based on evidence. He goes on in the rest of our passage today and he says this, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So he says, the gospel came to you and you heard it and God worked in your hearts and you believed. How did that happen? Well, that's the work of God in you and that you have evidence of that. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. Now, how did that happen? Well, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So what Paul says is this, all over the world, right? So Jesus said the gospel would go all over the world. He said it would start in, in Jerusalem, which it did, and then it would go to Judea and Samaria, which it's done, and it would go all over the empire, which now it's done, and then it would spread beyond that, which it's starting to do here. And his point is this, that there is a power in the gospel and that gospel will go to all people in all lands, in all languages, including languages and places that Paul doesn't even know exist yet. Right? The world's pretty small in Paul's day. Paul doesn't know that someday there will be people on the other side of the world sitting in a church talking about a letter that he wrote. And these are people that speak a language he's never heard of and live in a place he doesn't know about. And God uses people to do this. People like Paul, people like Epaphras, people like Timothy, and people like you. And he says, he talks here about bearing fruit and growing. Right, so Paul was preaching the gospel again, uh, just probably maybe two years earlier in Ephesus. And, which was a miracle in itself, as someone who hated Jesus and the apostles. That's a miracle right there. And then two men from Colossae just happened to go and hear the gospel and they believed. That's another proof. That's some more evidence there. And then, and then they took it home. And they, they shared the gospel as brand new believers with others and, and other people believed. That's, that's a miracle right there. And then they decided to start getting together and they formed a church and that's a miracle right there. And this would repeat itself all over the world. And, and people would bear fruit through the gospel, so that our hope, he's saying here, it's not wishful thinking. We can look around and see evidence of the hope that we have. You can look around this room and see evidence of the power of God in other people in this room. You may not know their story or you may know, but if you took the time to talk to them, you'd find out there's a story in their life that shows that there's power in the gospel. And every person in this room is evidence of the power of God. So it's not just wishful thinking, we can see it. Here's the question I want to ask us today as we kind of wrap this up. Are there signs of life in us? 
So Paul writes to the church in Colossae, I can see faith and I can see love and I can see hope. If he was in our church today, would he say the same thing? Would he say, you know, as I talk to some of you guys today, I can see there's faith and love and hope in this church. Now think about it. Paul wrote this letter to people that he had never met. He didn't, he didn't really know them. Epaphras delivers it to these people. They get to read it and, and they pass it around. And is that the end of the story? No. Actually, eventually there's an earthquake. The city is destroyed. It's never rebuilt. And if you go there today, there's nothing. But this letter lives on. And it's made its way all over the earth. And 2,000 years later, we can get together and read the same letter and the same Spirit of God can grow us and change us. Now, we are not a young church like the Colossian church. They were probably just a year or two old. Now, our church is 75 years old. We've been around for a long time. Our church was started in 1947 with a couple of families that decided, hey, let's plant a church in the Camas-Washugal area. And they called it Bible Baptist Church and they met in a home for a while. It was the home of the Morris family. I don't know the Morris family. You probably don't know. Until I mentioned them just now, you wouldn't have known that. And yet, this is their legacy. There was a, a missionary that had returned uh, named Carl Barber and he said, you know, I'll, I'll pastor you guys for a little while. And the church was born. We're but we're an old church. We've been around for a long time. But what Paul is saying is true for this brand new church. It's true for us who have been a church for 75 years. Is there proof of spiritual life in our church? Because the proof is the same. Is there faith in this place? Are we preaching Jesus Christ and Christ alone? Are we doing that? Would Paul, if he came in, he'd say, I can see for sure. This isn't just faith and faith. You guys trust Christ. Is there a love for all the saints here? Is there evidence that we really love each other? Now, I would tell you from my point of view, I walk in here and I, I don't know if this is a, I mean, I feel like this has always been a loving church, but ever, you know, kind of post-COVID, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the staff have noticed this. Um, before COVID, we were different than we are now. Now there's a couple, there's two really interesting things. First of all, a lot of you come early. That never happened before COVID, okay? A church started three minutes after the hour mark, all right? And now people come early and hang out and you guys stick around, a lot of you for a long time afterwards, talking and caring for each other and loving one another. And we can see evidence of that. I could see evidence of that. How about hope? Is there hope in this church? Are we living and acting and making decisions based in, in, in light of heaven and that we have a future beyond this? So I want to ask you these, these questions right here. Let's put this into practice. Where can you trust Christ this week? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. Is there some place this week where you can put your faith into action? Maybe some decision that you need to make. But where can you place your faith putting Christ first? Where can you trust him this week? Uh, how about love? Where, who could you love this week? And where could you love this week? Maybe you need to start at home. Maybe you need to start with the person sitting next to you, right? That might work for you, right? Uh, maybe uh, someone you work with or go to school with tomorrow. Who is there in your life right now that really needs that? They need your love and you need to reach out and love them. Is there someone around you who's unlovable, who's hard to love? Right? Maybe they're in another church right now hearing the same sermon and, and they're thinking of you, right? So maybe who, who could you love this week and how can you live out your hope this week? Right? In light of heaven, where can you, instead of just making every decision based on today and tomorrow, where do you need to live in light of heaven?
faith, love, and hope. These are the proofs that we are believers. Um, I grew up in uh, Southern California in Orange County. And uh, when I was in middle school, my parents bought some property in the hills of L.A. And we moved up and had a little acreage. And um, on the, kind of in the, in the valley floor, it was all orange trees. So we lived in an orange grove. And then the hill was uh, avocado trees. So it was a pretty great place to live. We always had orange juice and guacamole. So life was good. And, um, and so when we moved there, I'd always wanted to have a garden. I thought that would be really cool. We had enough property. So I, it's kind of clay soil. So I did a ton of rototilling and digging everything, getting rid of the weeds. And then I planted this huge garden. The first year that we lived there it was super fun until I discovered uh, that weeds uh, grow faster than vegetables. And so I would weed and weed. And there was this one weed that, that grew up and it grew up really fast in the middle of the garden. So I would, you know, hack it out and, and it would just keep coming back. And the next summer it did it. And the third summer I thought, you don't know what this thing is. And it just keeps coming back. And I can't, I would spray it. I couldn't kill the thing. So finally, I thought, well, I'll, I don't know what it is, so I'm just let it grow and see what it produces. And by the end of the first summer, that thing had grown about this tall. And I knew at this point it wasn't a weed, it was a tree, but I didn't know what kind of tree it was. And I guess I could have, you know, the, there was no internet yet, it was a stone age, so I wasn't sure I could go to nursery, but I thought, I'll just let it grow. And the next year it was, you know, pretty tall. And again, I'm like, I don't know what that tree is. And by the third year, it, it blossomed. And I thought, well, now we're going to find out what this is. And then it produced this kind of little green fruit about this big. I was like, I had no idea what that is. And then after a while, it kind of shriveled up and I took the shell off and I discovered it was a walnut. And I knew that it was a walnut tree. In fact, I did a little research and found out that before people came through and cut down, it was, it was all, the whole valley was walnut trees. And people came out and they thought, you know, walnuts, who wants walnuts? And they cut them all down. And apparently they didn't remove all the stumps. And so there was a stump under there just waiting to become a walnut tree. You can always tell what a plant is by what it produces. And that's true for us. You can always tell what we are by what we produce. And I'm not telling you all this. The message isn't like, go out and do all this stuff this week so that you can be saved. The point Paul's going to make in this book is this. If you're already saved, then just don't get in the way. Because God is going to produce love and, and faith and hope in you. He's going to do it. Just don't stop him. Because this is what you are as a, as a believer. In Luke 6, Jesus said this, Each tree is recognized by its fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from buyers. And so in Colossians 1, 1 through 8, all he says is this. If your roots are established in Christ, then you are going to produce faith and love and hope. So don't get in the way of God. Don't keep cutting that thing down. Let it grow in your life and work with God in this. But it all starts, it all starts in Christ. That's what he says there to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. And so we're going to finish our time together this morning by taking communion and remembering how it is that we get in Christ. So some of our men are going to go back and we're going to do something that may feel really weird to you. All right. Uh, this, so just hold on. Um, maybe you've never seen this before. I don't know. So they're going to pick up these trays and they're going to come forward and they're going to pass out these trays. And on the tray is uh, there's a, a little cup and there's a little bread and it's weird because they're not together 
encapsulated in plastic. And this isn't going to taste like styrofoam, all right? So this could be a little different. And um, they're going to pass this out. This is, this is old school communion going on here. So if you are a believer in Christ, I'd encourage you to take a cup and, and take this. Now, if you're not ready for that, uh, we totally get that. So we have some of the new school communion in there as well. And if you'd rather pick up one of those, go ahead and take one of those. So guys, come forward and begin to pass that out. Or you can take this. If you need the gluten-free option, we have it right back on the table there as well. As they're passing that out, I want to uh, just set this up for us as we take communion this morning. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, I invite you to partake of communion with us. But remember that it all starts in Christ to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And we could as well say to those in Washougal, to, to those in Camas, to those in, in Clark County. He says, um, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. This is a, a, a Christian greeting that Paul has kind of wrangled to, together and we see this in many of his letters. The word grace, a karos in the Greek there, uh, simply means this, that you are the recipient of a gift from God. That God has given you a gift in Christ. Uh, grace, by its definition, means unmerited favor. That you have favor with God, but you didn't earn it. That's all it means. It was a gift that God gave to you when you believed. That Jesus Christ paid for your salvation with his life on the cross, and it's a gift. It's not based on performance, rituals, merit, or being good enough. And I love how one writer put it. He said, what Paul's literally saying is this. Be a good taker of God's grace. We're not often good takers of God's grace. Have you noticed that? A lot of times we'll take some of the grace of God, but uh, does it really forgive me for this or this or this? And maybe I need to do this or this or that thing in order to be okay with God. And No, what it says is by the grace of God, you are good enough. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. The word for peace there, irene in the Greek, uh, has its roots in the Hebrew word shalom which means to be at peace or rest or has this idea of, of wholeness or well-being. And if you had lived in those days, you would have known the propaganda of Rome that said this, that the empire was the only system that could guarantee security and peace in a world that was really violent. And uh, the Latin word pax, the word for peace, the Latin word was everywhere. It was on monuments, it was on uh, statues, it was on buildings. If you, went into, if you went through gateways into cities, it would have the word pax on there. Their coin, the Roman coins had the, the goddess pax on one side, the goddess of peace, and on the other side it would have a sword. And so the message was that peace comes through violence, through the sword, through, you know, weapons. But it was a fragile peace. Rome thought that it was too big to fail. And we know, of course, that it was not. But Christ offers us true peace. He offers us peace with God through the work of Christ on the cross. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the church and he explains. When we take communion, he says, here's, here's what you're doing with the bread and the cup. He said, this is, this is my body, which is for you. He said, when you take communion in the future, do it in remembrance of me. Remember my body that was broken for you. Ah, he said, with the cup, it's the new covenant in my blood that you do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as often as you do it, Paul says, first of all, do it thoughtfully, do it prayerfully, and then partake, remembering the body and the blood of Christ. So I'm gonna pray for us. 
And then I'm going to invite you when you're ready to take the bread and to take the cup and we'll worship together in, in a closing song. Father, we thank you so much for uh, our time in your word this morning. And we thank you for the reminder of these, these proofs of genuine life in Christ, of faith and love and hope. And I thank you that all of these things are rooted in your son, Jesus Christ, and who he was and in what he did for us on the cross. That he paid for all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he offers to us new life, that we may be saints, holy ones, forgiven, reconciled, redeemed. We thank you for the body of Christ that was broken for us. We thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We thank you for this, this morning when we can remember those things and celebrate this in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So go ahead and take a moment, pray, and when you're ready, take the bread take the cup.